Hello and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today, we'll be continuing with The Conquest of Bread. We have another long chapter. I seem to keep underestimating how long these are going to run, but this one will be split over until next week and might be paired with another chapter or might have some thoughts from me because I'm increasingly having thoughts about this book and that I want to add somewhere in here. So look forward to that at some point in the next few weeks, or maybe even at the end of the book. But without any further distractions, let's get started with today's reading. Chapter 12. Objections. Section 1. Let us now examine the principal objections put forth against communism. Most of them are evidently caused by a simple misunderstanding, yet they raise important questions and merit our attention. It is not for us to answer the objections raised by authoritarian communism. We ourselves hold with them. Civilized nations have suffered too much in a long, hard struggle for the emancipation of the individual to disown their past work and to tolerate a government that would make itself felt in the smallest details of a citizen's life, even if that government had no other aim than the good of the community. Should an authoritarian socialist society ever succeed in establishing itself, it could not last. General discontent would soon force it to break up, or to reorganize itself on principles of liberty. It is of an anarchist-communist society we are about to speak, a society that recognizes the absolute liberty of the individual, that does not admit of any authority, and makes use of no compulsion to drive men to work. Limiting our studies to the economic side of the question, let us see if such a society, composed of men as they are today, neither better nor worse, neither more nor less industrious, would have a chance of successful development. The objection is known, quote, If the existence of each is guaranteed, and if the necessity of earning wages does not compel men to work, nobody will work. Every man will lay the burden of his work on another if he is not forced to do it himself. Let us first note the incredible levity with which this objection is raised, without even realizing that the real question raised by this objection is merely to know, on the one hand, whether you effectively obtain by wage work the results that are said to be obtained, and, on the other hand, whether voluntary work is not already now more productive than work stimulated by wages. A question which, to be dealt with properly, would require a serious study. But whereas, in exact sciences, men give their opinion on subjects infinitely less important and less complicated after serious research, after carefully collecting and analyzing facts, on this question they will pronounce judgment without appeal, Resting satisfied with any one particular event, such as, for example, the want of success of some communist association in America, they act like the barrister who does not see in the counsel for the opposite side a representative of a cause, or an opinion contrary to his own, but a simple nuisance, an adversary in an oratorical debate, and if he be lucky enough to find a repartee, does not otherwise care to justify his cause. Therefore, The study of this essential basis of all political economy, the study of the most favorable conditions for giving society the greatest amount of useful products with the least waste of human energy, does not advance. P. 
people either limit themselves to repeating commonplace assertions, or else they pretend ignorance of our assertions. What is most striking in this levity is that even in capitalist political economy, you already find a few writers compelled by facts to doubt the axiom put forth by the founders of their science, that the threat of hunger is man's best stimulant for productive work. They begin to perceive that in production a certain collective element is introduced, which has been too much neglected up till now, and which might be more important than personal gain. The inferior quality of wage work, the terrible waste of human energy in modern agricultural and industrial labour, the ever-growing quantity of pleasure-seekers, who shift their burden onto others' shoulders, the absence of a certain animation in production that is becoming more and more apparent. All this is beginning to preoccupy the economists of the classical school. Some of them ask themselves if they have not got on the wrong track, if the imaginary evil being that was supposed to be tempted exclusively by a bait of lucre or wages really exists. This heresy penetrates even into universities. It is found in books of orthodox economy. But this does not prevent a great many socialist reformers from remaining partisans of individual remuneration and defending the old citadel of wagedom, notwithstanding that it is being delivered over, stone by stone, to the assailants by its former defenders. They fear that without compulsion the masses will not work. But during our own lifetime, have we not heard the same fears expressed twice? Once by the anti-abolitionists in America before the emancipation of the slaves, and for a second time, by the Russian nobility before the liberation of the serfs? Without the whip, the slave will not work, said the anti-abolitionist. Free from their master's supervision, the serfs will leave the fields uncultivated, said the Russian serf owners. It was the refrain of the French noblemen in 1789, the refrain of the Middle Ages, a refrain as old as the world and we shall hear it every time there is a question of sweeping away an injustice, and each time actual facts give it the lie. The liberated peasant of 1792 ploughed with an eager energy, unknown to his ancestors. The emancipated slave works more than his father's, and the Russian peasant, after having honoured the honeymoon of his emancipation by celebrating Friday as well as Sundays, has taken up work with an eagerness proportionate to the completeness of his liberation. There, where the soil is his, he works desperately. That is the exact word for it. The anti-abolitionist refrain can be of value to slave owners, as to the slaves themselves. They know what it is worth, as they know its motive. Moreover, who but the economists themselves taught us that while a wage earner's work is very often indifferent, an intense and productive work is only obtained from a man who sees his wealth increase in proportion to his efforts. All hymns sung in honour of private property can be reduced to this axiom. For it is remarkable that when economists, wishing to celebrate the blessings of property, show us how an unproductive, marshy, or stony soil is clothed with rich harvests when cultivated by the peasant proprietor. They in no wise prove their thesis in favour of private property, by admitting that the only guarantee not to be robbed of the fruits of your labour is to possess the instruments of labour, which is true, 
The economists only prove that man really produces most when he works in freedom, when he has a certain choice in his occupations, when he has no overseer to impede him, and lastly, when he sees his work bringing in a profit to him and to others who work like him, but bringing in little to idlers. Nothing else can be deducted from the argumentation, and this is what we maintain ourselves. As to the form of the possession of the instruments of labor, the economists only mention it indirectly in their demonstration, as a guarantee to the cultivator that he shall not be robbed of the profits of his yield, nor of his improvements. Besides, in support of their thesis in favor of private property against all other forms of possession, should not the economists demonstrate that under the form of communal property, land never produces such rich harvests as when the possession is private? But this they could not prove. In fact, it is the contrary that has been observed. Take, for example, a commune in the canton of Vaux in the winter time, when all the men of the village go to fell wood in the forest, which belongs to them all. It is precisely during these festivals of labor that the greatest ardor for work and the most considerable display of human energy are apparent. No salaried labor, no effort of a private owner can bear comparison with it. Or let us take a Russian village, when all its inhabitants mow a field belonging to the commune or farmed by it. There you will see what man can produce when he works in common for communal production. Comrades vie with one another in cutting the widest swath. Women bestir themselves in their wake so as not to be distanced by the mowers. It is a festival of labor, in which a hundred people accomplish in a few hours a work that would not have been finished in a few days had they worked separately. What a miserable contrast compared to them is offered by the work of the isolated owner. In fact, we might quote scores of examples among the pioneers of America, in Swiss, German, Russian, and in certain French villages, or the work done in Russia by gangs, artels, of masons, carpenters, boatmen, fishermen, etc., who undertake a task and divide the produce or the remuneration among themselves without it passing through an intermediary of middlemen, or else the amount of work I saw performed in English shipyards when the remuneration was paid on the same principle. We could also mention the great communal hunts of nomadic tribes, and an infinite number of successful collective enterprises, and in every case we would show the unquestionable superiority of communal work compared to that of the wage earner or the isolated private owner. Well-being, that is to say, the satisfaction of physical, artistic, and moral needs, has always been the most powerful stimulant to work, and where a hireling hardly succeeds to produce the bare necessities with difficulty, a free worker, who sees ease and luxury increasing for him and for others in proportion to his efforts, spends infinitely far more energy and intelligence, and obtains products in a far greater abundance. The one feels riveted to misery, the other hopes for ease and luxury in the future. In this lies the whole secret. Therefore, a society aiming at the well-being of all and the possibility of all enjoying life in all its manifestations, will give voluntary work, which will be infinitely superior and yield far more than work has produced up till now, under the goad of slavery, serfdom, or wagedom.
Section 2. Nowadays, whoever can load on others his share of labour indispensable to existence does so, and it is believed that it will always be so. Now, work indispensable to existence is essentially manual. We may be artists or scientists, but none of us can do without things obtained by manual work. Bread, clothes, roads, ships, light, heat, etc. And, moreover, however highly artistic or however subtly metaphysical are our pleasures, they all depend on manual labour. And it is precisely this labour, the basis of life, that everyone tries to avoid. We understand perfectly well that it must be so nowadays. Because, to do manual work now means in reality to shut yourself up for 10 or 12 hours a day in an unhealthy workshop, and to remain chained to the same task for 20 or 30 years, and maybe for your whole life. It means to be doomed to a paltry wage, to the uncertainty of the morrow, to want of work, often to destitution, more often than not to death in a hospital, after having worked 40 years to feed, clothe, amuse, and instruct others than yourself and your children. It means to bear the stamp of inferiority all your life, because, whatever the politicians tell us, the manual worker is always considered inferior to the brain worker, and the one who has toiled 10 hours in a workshop has not the time, and still less the means, to give himself the high delights of science and art, nor even to prepare himself to appreciate them. He must be content with the crumbs from the table of privileged persons. We understand that under these conditions, Manual labour is considered a curse of fate. We understand that all men have but one dream, that of emerging from, or enabling their children to emerge from, this inferior state, to create for themselves an independent position. Which means what? To also live by other men's work. As long as there will be a class of manual workers and a class of brain workers, black hands and white hands, it will be thus. What interest, in fact, can this depressing work have for the worker when he knows that the fate awaiting him from the cradle to the grave will be to live in mediocrity, poverty, and insecurity of the morrow? Therefore, when we see the immense majority of men take up their wretched task every morning, we feel surprised at their perseverance, at their zeal for work, at the habit that enables them, like machines blindly obeying an impetus given, to lead this life of misery without hope for the morrow, without foreseeing ever so vaguely that some day they, or at least their children, will be part of a humanity rich in all the treasures of a bountiful nature, in all the enjoyments of knowledge, scientific and artistic creation, reserved today to a few privileged favourites. It is precisely to put an end to this separation between manual and brain work that we want to abolish wagedom, that we want the social revolution. Then work will no longer appear a curse of fate, it will become what it should be, the free exercise of all the faculties of man. Moreover, it is time to submit to a serious analysis this legend about superior work, supposed to be obtained under the lash of wagedom. It would be sufficient to visit, not the model factory and workshop that we find now and again, 
but a number of the ordinary factories, to conceive the immense waste of human energy that characterizes modern industry. For one factory, more or less rationally organized, there are a hundred or more which waste man's labor, without any more substantial motive than that of perhaps bringing in a few pounds more per day to the employer. Here you see youths from 20 to 25 years of age, sitting all day long on a bench, their chests sunken in, feverishly shaking their heads and bodies, to tie, with the speed of conjurers, the two ends of worthless scraps of cotton, the refuse of the lace looms. What progeny will these trembling and ricketing bodies bequeath to their country? But they occupy so little room in the factory, and each of them brings me in sixpence net every day, will say the employer. In an immense London factory, we saw girls, bald at seventeen from carrying trays of matches on their heads from one room to another, when the simplest machine could wheel the matches to their tables. But it costs so little, the work of women who have no special trade. Why should we use a machine? When these can do no more, they will be easily replaced. There are so many of them in the street. On the steps of a mansion on an icy night, you will find a barefooted child asleep, with its bundle of papers in its arms. Child labor costs so little that it may well be employed, every evening, to sell ten penny worth of papers, of which the poor boy will receive a penny, or a penny halfpenny. And continually, in all big cities, you may see robust men tramping about, who have been out of work for months, while their daughters grow pale in the overheated vapors of the workshops for dressing stuffs, and their sons are filling blacking pots by hand, or spend those years during which they ought to have learned a trade in carrying about baskets for a greengrocer, and at the age of 18 or 20 become regular unemployed. And so it is everywhere, from San Francisco to Moscow, and from Naples to Stockholm. The waste of human energy is the distinguishing and predominant trait of our industry, not to mention trade where it attains still more colossal proportions. What a sad satire is that name, political economy, given to the science of waste and energy under the system of wagedom. This is not all. If you speak to the director of a well-organized factory, he will naively explain to you that it is difficult nowadays to find a skillful, vigorous, and energetic workman who works with a will. Quote, Should such a man present himself among the twenty or thirty who call every Monday asking us for work, he is sure to be received, even if we are reducing the number on our hands. We recognize him at the first glance, and he is always accepted even though we have to get rid of an older and less active worker the next day. End quote. And the one who has just received notice to quit, and all those who will receive it tomorrow, go to reinforce that immense reserve army of capital, workmen out of work, who are only called to the loom or the bench when there is pressure of work or to oppose strikers. And those others, the average workers who are sent away by the better class factories as soon as the business is slackened, they also join the formidable army of aged and indifferent workers who continually circulate among the second-class factories, those which barely cover their expenses and make their way in the world by trickery and snares laid for the buyer, and especially for the consumer in distant countries. And if you talk to the workmen themselves, you will soon learn that the rule in such factories is 
never do your best. Shoddy pay, shoddy work. This is the advice which the working man receives from his comrades upon entering such a factory. For the workers know that if in a moment of generosity they give way to the entreaties of an employer and consent to intensify the work in order to carry out a pressing order, this nervous work will be exacted in the future as a rule in the scale of wages. Therefore, in all such factories, they prefer never to produce as much as they can. In certain industries, production is limited so as to keep up high prices, and sometimes the password, go canny, is given, which signifies bad work for bad pay. Wage work is surf work. It cannot, it must not, produce all that it could produce, and it is high time to disbelieve the legend which represents wagedom as the best incentive to productive work. If industry nowadays brings in a hundred times more than it did in the days of our grandfathers, it is due to the sudden awakening of physical and chemical sciences towards the end of the last century, not to the capitalist organization of wagedom, but in spite of that organization. Section 3. Those who have seriously studied the question do not deny any of the advantages of communism, on condition, be it well understood, that communism be perfectly free, that is to say, anarchist. They recognize that work paid with money, even disguised under the name of labor checks to workers' associations governed by the state, would keep up the characteristics of wagedom and would retain its disadvantages. They agree that the whole system would soon suffer from it, even if society came into possession of the instruments of production. And they admit that, thanks to an integral, complete education given to all children, to the laborious habits of civilized societies, with the liberty of choosing and varying their occupations, and the attractions of work done by equals for the well-being of all, a communist society would not be wanting in producers who would soon make the fertility of the soil triple and tenfold, and give a new impulse to industry. This our opponents agree to. Quote, But the danger, they say, will come from that minority of loafers who will not work and will not have regular habits, in spite of the excellent conditions that would make work pleasant. Today the prospect of hunger compels the most refractory to move along with the others. The one who does not arrive in time is dismissed, but one black sheep suffices to contaminate the whole flock, and two or three sluggish or refractory workmen would lead the others astray and bring a spirit of disorder and rebellion into the workshop that would make work impossible, so that in the end we should have to return to a system of compulsion that would force such ringleaders back into the ranks. And then, is not the system of wages paid in proportion to work performed, the only one that enables compulsion to be employed without hurting the feelings of independence of the worker? All other means would imply the continual intervention of an authority that would be repugnant to free men. End quote. This, we believe, is the objection fairly stated. To begin with, such an objection brings to the category of arguments which try to justify the state, the penal law, the judge, and the guailer. Quote, as there are people, a feeble minority, who will not submit to social customs, the authoritarians say. We must maintain magistrates, tribunals, and prisons, although these institutions become a source of new evils of all kinds. End quote. 
Therefore, we can only repeat what we have so often said concerning authority in general. Quote, to avoid a possible evil, you have recourse to means which in themselves are a greater evil, and become the source of those same abuses that you wish to remedy. For, do not forget that it is wagedom, the impossibility of living otherwise than by selling your labor, which has created the present capitalist system, whose vices you begin to recognize. End quote. Besides, this way of reasoning is merely a sophisticated justification of the evils of the present system. Wisdom was not instituted to remove the disadvantages of communism. Its origin, like that of the state and private ownership, is to be found elsewhere. It is born of slavery and serfdom, imposed by force, and only wears a more modern garb. Thus, the argument in favor of wagedom is as valueless as those by which they seek to apologize for private property and the state. We are nevertheless going to examine the objection to see if there is any truth in it. First of all, is it not evident that if a society, founded on the principle of free work, were really menaced by loafers, it could protect itself without the authoritarian organization we have nowadays, and without having recourse to wagedom? Let us take a group of volunteers combining for some particular enterprise, having its success at heart. They all work with a will, save one of the associates, who is frequently absent from his post. Must they on his account dissolve the group, elect a president to impose fines, and work out a code of penalties? It is evident that neither the one nor the other will be done, but that same day the comrade who imperils their enterprise will be told. Friend, we should like to work with you. But as you are often absent from your post, and you do your work negligently, we must part. Go and find other comrades, who will put up with your indifference. This way is so natural that it is practiced everywhere. Even nowadays, in all industries, in competition with all possible systems of fines, docking of wages, supervision, etc. A workman may enter the factory at the appointed time, but if he does his work badly, if he hinders his comrades by his laziness or other defects, if he is quarrelsome, there is an end of it. He is compelled to leave the workshop. Authoritarians pretend that it is the almighty employer and his overseers who maintain regularity and quality of work in factories. In reality, in every somewhat complicated enterprise, in which the goods produced pass through many hands before being finished, it is the factory itself, the workmen as a unity, who see the good quality of the work. Therefore, the best factories of British private industry have few overseers, far less on an average than the French factories, and less than the British state factories. A certain standard of public morals is maintained in the same way. Authoritarians say it is due to rural guards, judges, and policemen whereas in reality it is maintained in spite of judges, policemen, and rural guards. Many are the laws producing criminals. Was said long ago. Not only in industrial workshops do things go on in this way, it happens everywhere, every day, on a scale that only bookworms have as yet no notion of. When a railway company, federated with other companies, fails to fulfill its engagements, when its trains are late and goods lie neglected at the stations, 
the other companies threaten to cancel the contract, and that threat usually suffices. It is generally believed, at any rate it is taught in state-approved schools, that commerce only keeps to its engagements from fear of lawsuits. Nothing of the sort. Nine times in ten, the trader who has not kept his word will not appear before a judge. There, where trade is very active, as in London, the sole fact of having driven a creditor to bring a lawsuit suffices for the immense majority of merchants to refuse for good to have any dealings with a man who has compelled one of them to go to law. This being so, why should means that are used today among workers in the workshop, traders in the trade, and railway companies in the organization of transport not be made use of in a society based on voluntary work? Take, for example, an association stipulating that each of its members should carry out the following contract. Quote, we undertake to give you the use of our houses, stores, streets, means of transport, schools, museums, etc., on condition that, from 20 to 45 or 50 years of age, you consecrate four or five hours a day to some work recognized as necessary to existence. Choose yourself the producing groups which you wish to join, or organize a new group, provided that it will undertake to produce necessaries. And as for the remainder of your time, combine together with whomsoever you like, for recreation, art, or science, according to the bent of your taste. Twelve or fifteen hundred hours of work a year, in one of the groups producing food, clothes, or houses, or employed in public sanitation, transport, and so on, is all we ask of you. For this amount of work, we guarantee to you the free use of all that these groups produce, or will produce. But if not one of the thousands of groups of our federation will receive you, whatever be their motive, if you are absolutely incapable of producing anything useful, or if you refuse to do it, then live like an isolated man, or like an invalid. If we are rich enough to give you the necessaries of life, we shall be delighted to give them to you. You are a man and you have the right to live. But as you wish to live under special conditions and leave the ranks, it is more than probable that you will suffer for it in your daily relations with other citizens. You will be looked upon as a ghost of bourgeois society. Unless some friends of yours, discovering you to be a talent, kindly free you from all moral obligation towards society by doing all the necessary work for you. And finally, if it does not please you, go and look for other conditions elsewhere in the wide world, or else seek adherence and organize with them on novel principles. We prefer our own. This is what could be done in a communal society in order to turn away sluggards if they became too numerous. And that concludes our reading for this week. As I said at the start, the rest of the chapter will be coming in next week's recording. If you would like to send any comments, questions, corrections, or suggestions, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or get the show on Twitter at leftistreading. This show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. If you're interested in other leftist podcasts, you should check out abnormalmapping.com, where you can find lots of others about books, movies, video games, anime. The intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find it and more of his music on soundimage.org. And that's all for this week. Thank you for listening, 
keep reading.